My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. That's the voice of today's guest on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. Today's guest grew up in Kashmir in South Asia. In the early 1990s, political violence erupted in Kashmir. It was a hard choice, but at the time he had a young family, and they decided that they needed to move abroad. He eventually ended up in Canada, where he has lived for more than two decades. Now, using passive language like political violence erupted almost always obscures power dynamics and histories of oppression and resistance. In this case, the long-standing and brutal occupation of Kashmir by the Indian state. Today's guest will be speaking as a member of Canadians for Peace and Justice in Kashmir, or CPJK, a group of Canadians, some of whom have ties to Kashmir, others of whom do not, committed to working in Canada towards a just peace in Kashmir. In doing so, he has requested to remain anonymous, because there have been instances in which Indian security forces have responded to people in the Kashmiri diaspora speaking out against the occupation and its human rights violations by retaliating against their family and friends in Kashmir. The roots of the current conflict go back to British colonial domination of the subcontinent. When the British were forced out in the 1940s, they decided to divide the many small kingdoms, principalities, and territories through which they exerted control into two countries, the Muslim nation of Pakistan and the Hindu-majority but officially secular India. The way the British enacted this partition resulted in violence, turmoil, and up to two million people being killed, plus tens of millions more displaced. And this is aside from the disputes arising with respect to the fate of a number of specific territories, including Kashmir, which has a Muslim-majority population, but a ruler in those years who was Hindu. Ultimately, Pakistan and India went to war over Kashmir in 1947. The Western powers insisted that they stop, and the United Nations Security Council passed a resolution that both countries should withdraw, and there should be a plebiscite to determine Kashmir's fate. But none of that happened and India continued to occupy the most populous portions of the territory, while Pakistan held on to the rest. That was more or less how things stayed until 1989, when a mass uprising began among Kashmiris demanding the right to self-determination enshrined in the UN Security Council resolution. This uprising included a component of armed struggle. The response by the Indian state was violent and ruthless, particularly in the early 1990s, Massacres, mass rapes, and all manner of human rights abuses have been documented. And while that may have been a tragic high point for the intensity of the repression, the basic everyday violence and dehumanizing indignity of occupation have remained fundamentally similar in the subsequent decades. 
And in 2019, the hard-right Indian government of Narendra Modi unilaterally revoked the guarantee of partial autonomy for Kashmir that had been part of the Indian constitution, instituted direct rule by the federal government, and significantly tightened the noose of the occupation in multiple ways. Few Canadians who do not themselves have ties to Kashmir know much about the conflict, so a key element of CPJK's work is doing public education on the issue. They have also lobbied MPs and presented to the Parliamentary Foreign Relations Committee. Today's guest recognizes that it will be an uphill battle. Canada is hoping to deepen economic ties with India, and the Western powers seem to be using India as an element of their increasingly hostile orientation towards China. But the group's goal is to get the Canadian government to do more to speak up for the human rights of Kashmiris, and to use their influence in that direction with other Western powers. They encourage all Canadians to learn more and to get involved. I speak with today's guest about the occupation of Kashmir, and about the work of Canadians for Peace and Justice in Kashmir. Uh, and you probably noticed that the opening clip from today's guest sounded a bit strange. In order to avoid endangering his loved ones in Kashmir, he asked not only to avoid using his name, but to have his voice changed. In almost nine years of doing this show, I've never done anything like this before. I don't love the quality of the sound that resulted, and for that I apologize in advance. But I hope you share my conclusion that it's worth it in order for us to learn more about this important struggle. I was born and brought up in Kashmir and lived there till the early 90s when, because of the circumstances that we're going to dwell into now, this being a sharp escalation of violence and the Nazi rebellion against India, which kind of prompted me to leave Kashmir, not in the sense that I didn't want to participate, but just because I had a young family. And it was a very tough decision for me to actually move out from the Kashmir Valley and move overseas. And worked in a number of countries until I decided that I need to have a place where I could bring my children up. And Kashmir was not an option to go back because the violence was still going on. And me and my wife decided that we want to come to Canada, primarily because of the fact that Canada has a reputation where it looks after people who have faced challenging circumstances in their lives and it has given them an opportunity to start a fresh and lead what for people like us is a normal life. That happened about 21 years back, and I'm glad we did that because our children have been brought up here with some semblance of stability and normality in our lives, but always we're thinking about how things are going back home. As far as coming to Canada, I think it has given us the ability to live with dignity. I think that's one of the biggest challenges that very few people understand until they've gone through it and lived through the occupation. The worst thing about an occupation is how demeaning it is, how much you're controlled and how much you're not allowed to think as a human being. You're literally turned into animals and only people who have lived through an occupation would be able to relate to that. That's one of the biggest gifts that Canada has given to us. It has given us the ability to live with dignity and freedom. So we've been in Canada for the last 20 plus years, based out of Toronto. Maybe a good place to start would be if you could explain briefly for listeners why anonymity and a disguised voice are important conditions for participating in this interview. It's the heavily militarized zone. In fact, it's the most militarized zone in the world right now. It's not only the occupation forces, there are various other means that they use to control people. There's a big security apparatus and the intelligence that is very brutal. 
they go to the point where the presence of not only on the people that they can take hold of them, but also on their family and extended family. And that can be a matter of huge concern because living in Canada, I have the ability to speak up with my fellow countrymen and my people back home don't have. But it also puts the onus on me to make sure that they're protected because when you're speaking here freely, has a huge impact on people living back home. And that to me is the primary reason why I want to be anonymous, um, that there won't be any reprisal against my family, against my friends. I don't want my ability to speak out here affect anybody back in Canada. India has been quite brutal in trying to curtail the ability of Kashmiris to speak up. So most people in Canada who don't themselves have ties to Kashmir know very little about the situation there. So why don't you lay out some of the relevant history? Let me take you back to the time that the British ruled India. They went there in the late 17th century and then eventually they were able to rule the whole country. At the height of the occupation of the subcontinent, which now comprises India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Burma, it's literally 40% of the world's population right now. They rule that whole population. There's only about 50,000 actual British people living in India. What they did is they actually created different power structures in the subcontinent. They centralized power in Delhi and they had the British Army, which was comprised of Indians. And what they did is they also created a number of secondary buffers between them and the general population. By that I mean they created the princely states or kingdoms and they were scattered all over India. So it was not one country. It was a multitude of principalities, kingdoms, princely holdings, all merged into one, but under the overall suzerainty of the British. The British would control them by having a local commissioner in place who would oversee the prince or the king, and they controlled the whole country like that, breaking it up into a number of small parts which eventually responded to the British power structure. That was still in place by the time the British decided to leave. They were looking at giving South rule, and India said, no, we don't want South rule, and eventually they decided that India would be fully independent. Now, in India, there were not only these small princely holdings of kingdoms in play, but there were also the differences between the Hindu population, which is the majority, and the Muslim population, which is a significant minority. If the Pakistani and Bangladeshi population, which is primarily Muslim, is added to what the subcontinent is, about 30% of the population was minority, which is significantly Muslim. And the minority said that in the fight for independence, they've been a part of it. But the Hindus were trying to take over all the power, and in the end, they might not have the ability to control their destiny, which played into the hands of strong Muslim leadership at that time of Muhammad Ali Jinnah. He was able to negotiate with the British that eventually, for the rights of the Muslims, the British will have to split it into two countries. So that was decided, but at the same time, because there were so many large kingdoms or princely holdings within the power structure, the British had to decide what's going to happen to them. What was decided that time is the, the, the majority of the population living in these princely holdings, whether it's Muslim or Hindu, would have the option of going to either 
in India or Pakistan. So if the majority was Muslim, they go to Pakistan. If the majority was Hindu, they go to India. In a couple of these situations, the prince or the king of these princely states tended to be from the opposite religion. In the case of Kashmir, the population was majority Muslim and the ruling king was a Hindu. And he tried to hold off. So when in August 1947, British left India and there was India and Pakistan, technically Kashmir was a free country because that king refused to either merge with Pakistan or with India, even though the choice for the people would have in Pakistan because the majority was Muslim. In between August and October of that year, there were a lot of developments happening, and you will hear different narratives, both from the Indian side and also from the Pakistani side. But what actually happened that time that India and Pakistan went to war, there was the first war of Kashmir that happened in 1947 and early part of 1948. Then the superpowers at that time, basically the Western powers of today, England and US and France, they went and forced India and Pakistan to have a ceasefire. So there was a ceasefire. It went to the United Nations and in the Security Council they passed a resolution where they said, okay, let the people of Kashmir decide what they want. So both countries, that is India and Pakistan, should be withdrawing their troops from Kashmir and there would be a predecessor. And that was unanimously agreed on by the Security Council and there have been numerous resolutions that they passed. Unfortunately, not one of those resolutions has been actually implemented and there has been no services in Kashmir right till the moment. With that in mind, and India came in and took over here with the bulk of the population there and in Pakistan held on to the part which was less populated. So the majority of the Kashmiri population had this always in the back of their mind that they've never been given the right to determine where they want to go. And that's similar till 1989. And this 1989, it turned out in the mass rebellion, which was armed too, because Kashmiris at that stage decided that they want to fight. They had seen the success of the Afghan Mujahideen fighting the Russians, and they felt that it was a successful event and they can do the same. And a lot of Kashmiri youth crossed over into Pakistan and asked the Pakistani government to help them. And in a clandestine way, Pakistan provided arms to these youth and told them, okay, go and fight if you want to go back and fight the Indians in Kashmir. And that started a mass rebellion against the Indians in late 1989 and 1990. So that turned into a really messy, violent movement, which is still ongoing. But the early part of the 1990s were probably the worst, because that was the time that India really turned off their brutal way of dealing with it, and they just came down with a very heavy hand. And there were huge human rights violations, massacres of people, numerous massacres, mass rape, people disappeared, and it's still going on it's to a lesser extent, but that was the worst period between 1990 and 1995. So that's where the conflict stands right now. It's in a kind of a limbo where the rebellion is still going on in a low-key manner. India is still being brutal and putting pressure on it. Pakistan is still going off to the world and saying, hey, look what these guys are doing. So the Kashmiris, they need the right of self-determination. And the world community has done nothing about it. And it's getting worse. India Trump gradually turned out to becoming more like a majority in fascist country now. And they're coming on very far in Kashmir in the last 
69 since uh, the present Prime Minister took power in India. And there are numerous human rights violations and killings that happen on a day-to-day basis. Kashmir is an indigenous fight for the rights of the local people and they are not being given their rights. I mean, you can uh, dispute that it's not been entirely peaceful, but at the same time, India has not given Kashmir's ability to be peaceful. And I understand that in 2019, the far-right Indian government under Narendra Modi ramped up the occupation of Kashmir in some important ways. What has that involved? Well, when India came into Kashmir in 1948 and they militarily occupied it, they also co-opted some local leadership who were sympathetic to India rather than Pakistan. And they co-opted those people and told them, okay, you go to the Kashmiri people and say, you have complete autonomy and we will guarantee by the Indian constitution. And when the Indians set up their constitution, they came up with Article 370 of their constitution, which guaranteed that the Kashmiri will have the ability to sell food and India will only be looking after foreign affairs defense and economic affairs on the national scale or international scale. That Article 370 was approved by the Indian Constitution Assembly. It was also approved by the local Constitution Assembly in Kashmir that time. And they decided that nobody can repeal it without having to go back to the people of Kashmir. What happened in 2019, Modi just went ahead and said, I'm going to revoke this Article 370 unilaterally. There was no discussion in Kashmir, nobody was asked, the people of Kashmir had no knowledge. They just shut down the whole place, put Turkey on it, got internet, and the central Indian government unrolled this Article 370 and turned Kashmir into what they call a territory which is ruled directly from the capital in India. So there is no local government. Since then, they started eroding a lot of rights that were guaranteed by that Article 370. A lot of the rights was that only people who are born in Kashmir would have property rights in Kashmir. So if I was born in Kashmir, you can't come and buy land in Kashmir. Then the other was that Kashmir born in Kashmir have the first rights on jobs and government sector and, and various economic agencies that are run by the government. Those were removed completely. The Kashmir police, the local police, it's now effectively run by the Indian government because all the officers are non-Kashmir. And in the background, they also started giving this right to own property in Kashmir to non-Kashmiris. So in the last two years, there's reports and some claim that up to five million such licenses have been issued or rights have been issued to Indians who are non-Kashmiris. And if you think that in the context of Kashmiris being 10 to 12 million, giving the rights to 5 million additional people, they have basically changed the demographics of Kashmir. If that is allowed to happen, they are basically balkanizing Kashmir and saying, okay, these people who are fighting against the are in the minority, and the majority is us. Also, since then, they've become more vocal in terms of how they're approaching Economically, any major Kashmiri businessman or somebody who has some economic, economic significance, they are tried under various laws of India and there are hundreds of them that they can use to curtail people and they are using that power to hit Kashmiris economically as well. 
directly without the occupation, in the sense that it was more that people who are in the rebellion would be at the receiving end, but now the whole population that is under the receiving end of India's brutality. How was Canadians for Peace and Justice in Kashmir founded? There's quite a few Kashmiris who faced the same situation as I have and moved to Canada. And we are all concerned about how things are going back in Kashmir. There's a like-minded group of people, some are in academics, some are in business, some are in professions like engineers, doctors, lawyers. We all came together and said, how do we let the Canadians know what is happening in Canada? Because there's very little that Canada knows about it, even though Canada was one of the sponsors of the first Security Council resolution about Canada. And the first legislative monitor in Kashmir, there was a huge group of Canadians that was involved in it. I think generally the people in Canada know very little about Kashmir, so we wanted to let people know about what is happening in Kashmir, educate them about the human rights. I mean, we all are Canadians. We really care about human rights. We care about dignity. We care about freedom. We care about respect of people to live their lives in a peaceful manner and giving them that freedom to live the way they want. And I think that's something that we want Canadians to know about, and that this organization has been formed to educate Canada, educate the Canadian people who are in power or who are have the ability to help voicing this concern on an international level or bringing it up in front of media. So that's the role of CPJK. What kinds of things has the organization done to try and accomplish those goals? The group is from the lot of Kashmiris, but we also have a lot of like-minded Canadians who have joined our group, and they are part of the advocacy we are doing. We have done a few seminars on YouTube. We have a website that we got. We have done a number of campaigns with local MPs and going up to senators and talking to the Foreign Relations Committee. We have also approached think tanks here and trying to educate them about the process that is happening in Kashmir. We have done a few articles for the press here, but not as CPJK, but people wrote us independently. We are still a small group. We need to grow more. We are looking for more membership from people who are like-minded and come up with ideas how we can advocate the rights of Kashmir. And that's with we are looking for is more engagement from people, like-minded people, that help us spread the message that what is happening in Kashmir is not fair, and it is usurping the rights of the people that deserve better. And when you've lobbied the Canadian government about all of this, what kinds of responses have you gotten? Every human being will be concerned by knowing what is happening in Kashmir. And to be fair, everybody has said, wow, this is brutal, this should not be happening in the present day world. But one thing that we also heard is that real politics comes into play, especially from the people who are in government, that they see that India is a significant economic power, and they would not like to tackle it directly, but more in a private manner. And that's been voiced to us a number of times. The other thing that is coming into play now is the present geopolitical situation in Asia. I think what is happening, the Western powers see India as a foil to China, because the new game is to contain China. And as a result, we were told that in a recent meeting, we can't tell India what to do because they are more important for us. So in a way, it tells us that Kashmiris will be squashed 
in their life because of a bigger game to play. Realistically, that is what has happened. India knows that it can get away with a lot in front of the world because they see them as a foil to China. But my position is different, and I think if Western powers and Western democracies are fighting China ideologically, and they're trying to say we stand up for right, freedom of expression, and democratic rights, if you're encouraging the same in a country that you think is the foil against China, it's being very hypocritical. And on the surface, people say yes, but officially, they they can say no, because they still see that India is the foil to China. And I think that is something that India has played very well. Whether India can actually stand up to China or not, that's debatable. But they are in a good spot right now. And that is a challenge for Kashmir. What would you want the Canadian government to do? Canada is a country that has tremendous ability to stand up and speak independently. It has some really significant relationships with countries in Europe, which are poorer economic ties than India. And it can play a part by saying, okay, we're a neutral country, but this is wrong. This is not what is right. India has to do the right thing. Hearing it from Canada, other countries will listen more to the point where they see there is maybe a different point we need to see. We need to see what the Kashmiris feel about it. How do you protect them? How do you save the small indigenous people and don't let them be trampled under the might of the Indian regime? So I think that's the part where Canada can play a big role. But the other side of it is Canada obviously also wants to deepen economic ties with India. Whether they're able to say that would be a loss for Canada, but we stand up and fight against repression and Kashmir. I think it can be balanced both ways. India, if it is reminded that they need to be respectful of Kashmiris, but probably not go to the point where they will cut economic ties. They might threaten, but if it is done by a number of countries together, they would have to at some point start making concessions to Kashmiri people. And how would you like people in Canada who don't have ties to Kashmir to be acting in solidarity with the people of Kashmir? I would love them to join us. We will educate them more. We would like their participation because we are a small group, but we can do much more with more people being part of the group and helping us and making it a larger effort. The more effort we make, the more noise we make in terms of advocating the rights of Kashmir, we probably get a more significant response. I mean, Canada also has deep ties with the U.S., and we all know the U.S. is a major player in the world, and if Canadians can help advocate more in the U.S. as well as in the Canadian power structure, I think that will be a big help. You have been listening to my interview with a member of Canadians for Peace and Justice in Kashmir. As I said off the top, he participated anonymously and his voice was disguised in order to protect friends and loved ones back in Kashmir. To learn more about the group, go to cpjk.org. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.